Hi, everyone, and welcome to the newest edition of the We Belong Here podcast powered by Civic Commons. My name is Frank Nam, and I'm really excited to host today's conversation. Uh, we are continuing our partnership with the Discovery Center at the Gates Foundation. The series is called Enduring COVID, Stories from Our Transforming World. And they had their very first episode recently. And I have the pleasure of speaking to three guests who are on the episode. Uh, really, you know, guests who are working with communities around, you know, actual like radio, storytelling, uh, artisan goods, um, you know, food, justice. And so I'm really excited to speak with them all. And I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Uh, so I'll have Roxana go first. Hey everyone, um, buenas tardes or buenos días. I'm Roxana Pardo Garcia. Um, I'm the owner, cultural worker, and certified chingona at La Roxy Productions, and also the co-founder and project lead of Alimentando al Pueblo. Hi, my name is Ming Ming Tung Edelman. I am the founder and executive director of Refugee Arts Initiative. Uh, we are here for about five years since we started. And uh, hello, my name is Tony Benton. I am the founder and station manager of Rainier Avenue Radio World. Wonderful. And you can tell Tony works in radio because that voice is just silky smooth. Good, good grief. And I don't know what kind of microphone you use, Tony, but it sounds really, really good. Okay. So uh, as you know, if our, for our listeners who have come onto the podcast before and heard us speak, we know that we love to hear stories. Like storytelling is a big part of what we do. And we believe by telling our personal stories, we prevent erasure. We really connect with each other and we create some social connections. And so I'm going to have each of our guests spend a little bit of time and just really dig into their origin story, who they are and what brought them here. What are the events? What are the people? What are the, the cultures that make them who they are? And so we're going to go in the same order and we're going to have Roxana just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so again, I'm Roxana Pardo Garcia. Um, I identify as a Chicana Mujerista. I was born and raised here in occupied Coast Salish territory, um, Burien. Um, my family uh, immigrated to the U.S. Um, in the 80s um, and met. my parents actually met in the Rainier Valley. Um, and we lived there for a while and then we ended up moving to Burien. Um, in 1996, and we have been here ever since then. Um, I grew up, um, you know, um, I'm culturally Mexican. <laughs> My family is Mexican, culturally Mexican. My dad was incarcerated when I was a teenager, and so I ended up living in a single parent household for a long time. Grew up, and once he left, he was the he was the breadwinner, and um, we we kind of uh, we were living in pretty extreme poverty after he left. And I had, I was a young brown, a young brown child with a lot of anger um, because I saw a lot of things and couldn't name them because I didn't have access to language um, that would give my pain and my hurt words in the community that I grew up in. A lot of the students, a lot of my neighbors looked like me, very, very, you know, Berrien, South King County is incredibly diverse. It has been for quite a bit some time. Um, and so when I would look around, I see all of these like black, brown and black faces and my and educators didn't look like me, role models in the community didn't look like me, um, the art um, in my school, the books that I read, like none of that looked like me or my peers. Um, so a lot of anger, a lot of anger. And when I became, um, when I got into high school, I was very fortunate to meet um, my, my now mentor, or she was my mentor then when I was 16. And I always say that um, she always tells me that she's like, I saw a fire in you and I had to make sure that I, you know, I uh, cultivated that fire. 
Um, and she was really instrumental in honoring my, my anger, um, not othering my anger, not vilifying my anger, but really providing me a space to process and to really feel the anger because it really was in response to, to a lot of inequities that I was, um, that I was living. Um, and then I somehow ended up in, at, at the University of Washington. And I say somehow because I was not college bound by any means. Um, and I ended up there and became um, quite uh, uh, involved in student politics on campus. Um, did a lot of cross-cultural, cross-organizational work with the Black Student Union, First Nations, Polynesian Student Alliance, like all these orgs. And I uh, did a lot of organizing and got very politicized while I was on campus. Um, and I graduated in 2013, came back to my community and said, all right, how are we, what are we going to do? Um, and I was working in nonprofits, uh, working in government, um, working in education, youth development. And then last year, um, the pandemic really had me think like, all right, what is it that we're going to do? Because things need to sh- need to change. Um, and there was a lot of times when I asked myself and others, like, what did we do to deserve to like to live through this time in um, this time point in history? And I really feel like in a lot of my reflection, it's because all of us are well equipped to usher the collective into a new way of being. Um, because what currently exists and how it exists is no longer sustainable. Is it has never been sustainable. Um, but I think that this pandemic has really like put put things in a very different perspective for so many folks. Um, and so I ended up quitting my day job. Um, I worked for um, I worked for a government, and I left a stable income and benefits to serve my community full time. Um, my, I already had my business and my business, um, I had my business for three years prior to quitting. Um, and so now I'm a full-time entrepreneur and a full-time community member in the community that raised me. Um, and so doing this work, um, and just really thankful to the women, to the mujeres, um, you know, who, who really held me up and who really mentored me and guided me and, and provided mm-hmm. space for me to be able to do the work that I'm doing today. Um, so that's a little bit about me and, um, where I'm coming from. The idea of like um, growing up in the neighborhood that you actually invent, eventually end up living in and staying in and working in and giving back to is such a powerful, like who knows better the solutions to community than community themselves, right? And so to, to intimately know, uh, to, to know Burien, to know South King County, um, that's something that's really powerful. And so place is such a big part of belonging, right? And obviously you found your place and, you know, and you're, I think it's going to be like ride or die. Like, you yeah. know, Burian, for sure. Oh, yeah. I think, honestly, I think place found me. <laughs> but, oh, I like it. Place found me. Um, and it's not letting me go, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I have a great, uh, you know, I think most of you probably know Abigail Echohawk uh, of the Echohawk siblings. And Abigail talks about, like, we are not historically uh, underserved. Like, we're historically, like, magnificent. We are historically, like, powerful. We're historically, like, we've been here for thousands of years. Like, in the most recent history, yes, you know, because of colonizers and because of this and uh, because of white supremacy, but don't talk about us as if we're like historically like, you know, deficit. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Mingming and have Mingming tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Mingming Tung Edelman. I'm a first generation uh, Chinese American. I born and raised in Taiwan uh, until I was age uh, 14. Uh, at that time, my father was already in Saudi Arabia, was one of the first three engineers sent by the Taiwanese government to build highways for, for, for their people. 
And after he was there for about five years, we decided to join him. So that was the first time I left my country and, and joined my father along with my um, two sis- my, my brother and my sister. And what in my suitcase, uh, besides my regular clothes, was this chiffon um, ruffle long turquoise dress it was made by my grandmother. Uh, I have a huge influence by my grandmother, Shizu. She was a single mother able to raise my mom in a small village in Taiwan as a home-based seamstress after her husband died young as an alcoholic. Uh, she made a huge impression on me. She, uh, My father was away a lot building all the freeway from the south end of Taiwan to the northern end. So every few months or half a year or a year, we will have to move. And my grandmother will always come and make sure that we were well taken care of while my mother was working full time. So she made all our clothes, <laughs> Chinese chi pao, dresses, uh, you know, always matching with my sister who was 14, young, 14 months younger than me. So having that dress with me, I didn't know what I'm going to wear, but I don't know why she wanted to give me such a fancy dress, but that was sort of her goodbye gift to us. I never saw her. Since then, she passed away a few years later. And I carried that dress with me in America. And um, and my family uh, settled in California. I went to, uh, um, uh, we didn't know that many people in the U.S., but my mom's bridesmaid <laughs> lived in San Luis Obispo. So we went there and uh, finished my uh, uh, three years of my high school in St. Louis Obispo. And to me, it was um, a cultural shock because uh, Saudi Arabia was already a cultural shock coming from Taiwan uh, to an Islamic culture <laughs> where they pray five days a week. But what really saved me was going to international school there where I learned English and first time exposure of classmates from all over the world, friends from Sweden, India, you know, Africa, Asia, um, I really broadened my view of the world. So coming from a very diverse um, kind of a place for two years before settling to a small, very more um, white <laughs> um, population town in, in a, a central coast, California, was a cultural shock to me because you know, nobody really looked like me. Uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, trying to figure out what I belong and I, couldn't wait to go to a bigger school in in college. Um, and as a first generation, um, knowing I was learning English and trying to figure out what would be my, my pathway and um, uh, realizing I like science, so I major in biology, but always minoring art because I love art, but didn't really want to take the chance to become an artist because I didn't know if I was able to feed myself. <laughs> Uh, so after that, I got my uh, doctorate degree in pharmacy. I've been practicing uh, clinical pharmacist for about 25 years. But there's always something that's missing. I always feel like even though I was helping my patients, you know, it's a very exact career. Uh, no, no room for error or personal interpretation. So about six years ago, I took a fashion certificate program at UW. And I've become a really good friend with my instructor, Camille Steen, who, um, you know, told me that she was teaching refugee women how to sew. So it was 
sparked an idea at the same time. I was disgusted by the tremendous amount of waste in the fashion industry. About 85% of your garments are end up going to landfill. So I thought maybe we can combine women that needing work and then diverting landfill uh, textile, creating refugee arts initiative, a circular and equitable economy, uh, creating job for refugee immigrant women while by making upcycling donated fabric. So that's how we started. And when COVID hit, we have about 200 sets of bed sheets that were donated to us by a local company. Uh, they're they're Amazon uh, primarily um, um, hosting their product. So all the returns, if you buy something by Amazon, you don't want it, even though you never opened it, they're not allowed to resell. So we're just trying to figure out what to do with them. I feel that was a perfect storm. Um, I knew how serious uh, COVID was right away, and uh, I knew people would need masks. So uh, very quickly, uh, designing a mask that's not to make, and we can make a lot of it because we have bed sheets. So fund our first GoFundMe campaign on March 19th, and three days later, we make 1,000 masks. <laughs> and, and then the fund we raised, we just uh, give them away, donate to hospital, healthcare workers, and um, and a, um, a group just visited me before our uh, our recording was a Rory Club of Seattle Northeast. They say we can raise $10,000. They will match nine or 10000 So that's how we make a lot of masks. So this year, the reflection is that we realize we're small and nimble and ready to pivot to meet the community's need. And right now, the, the mass production is down. And because of COVID, there's a lot of supply chain issue. We noticed by talking to our local hospital, sometimes it takes over one year to get their medical scrub. So why not train our women to make medical scrub locally and provide for our um, healthcare workers? So that's what we're doing right now. Thank you, Mingming. Um, I love that you started with the dress that your grandmother made you and how later on, like as your life evolved, like it's almost like a talisman, right? I really believe in like powerful talismans that we were given to like by our ancestors. And that actually, you still somehow came back to this idea of like sewing and putting together fabric and being using the artistic side of your 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 half. Um, and that's really cool for you to come kind of full circle and thinking about, you know, the, the all the work that she did as a seamstress, um, making that dress and making you and your, your sister and brother clothes. And so that's really cool. And then, then obviously doing the work to supply much needed PPE to our frontline staff and frontline workers is really uh, astounding. So thank you for your work. You're welcome. Just to let you know, right at the window here, um, we have a storefront right in front of me. So when people walk by, you can see my grandmother's dress. So she's the one that, oh, cool. that you know, give women tools and skills. They can be self-sufficient, be financially independent. So, um, so every morning I w- walk in here, I see that dress. Thank you. Uh, last but not least, of course, we have Tony. And so, Tony, tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, my origin story, the things that went into it were, were being born black <laughs> all my life. And so social unrest and uh, systemic impression are not things that are new to me. Uh, this, this, this isn't any different than it was in the 2000s, in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 60s, in the 50s, in the 40s. If I go back further, I'll be talking about slavery. Um, <clears throat> so this is this is there's not going to be a silver bullet to this. 
Uh, I think that, you know, at this particular point in time for a new generation of folks, they are made, they have been made aware of some things that have been going on since the existence of this country, if you're black. Um, uh, So that has shaped me. Um, Being a father uh, to a daughter has probably been the most significant change in my life since that's happened because the perspective uh, that I've had is raising a child, um, raising a, a young daughter child, and and then realizing that no matter what I do or, or what I provide um, to my daughter, she won't grow up in a bubble. I, I have to expose her to things that are going on in the world. And if that is the case, and I see things in my radar that are counterproductive uh, to being healthy, um, then I, I try to do something about them because if I don't do something about them, um, I'm, I'm not protecting my family. I'm not protecting my daughter because we can't live in a bubble. Um, being engaged and involved in media has had a tremendous effect uh, on my perspective. Um, I did 20 years of major market media um, for a leading media company, you know, and so I watched the media industry go from something that was essentially mom and pop run and very localized uh, to the Telecommunications Act, which changed the entire game. Uh, and uh, companies were allowed to own multiple uh, media from print to television. And so you had a, a bunch of independent media across the nation um, who were suddenly uh, beholden to four or five <laughs> Um, you know, what I'll call overseers who decided what we should hear and how we should see it. And it happened so subtly that most people weren't even aware that it was taking place. Um, <clears throat> and um, in, in that process where the central focus went to being how many people can you get to listen, um, that changed the impact, in particular for communities of color. Uh, because the emphasis was no longer on what's good for you. It's what's good for the shareholders so that they can make the most money, which means how do they reach the most audience? I'm not, you know, ragging on the system. I'm just saying that that watching that point of view changed my perspective on the importance of sharing information within the community because communities where that weren't connected uh, weren't able to share important information with with each other. We're able to get important information with each other. And I think that the time that we're in right now is a clear reflection of the power of misinformation. Um, Where do you get your news? Who gives you your news? Um, And so that had a a, a big impact on me. And so after 20 years of major market radio, uh, you know, um, again, I've been um, I've been a musician. I've been a recording artist. I've been a public information officer for the city of Seattle who would tell you uh, how the water filtration system was working or not working uh, if something was happening. I did 20 years of, um, again, in major market radio where I was the director of community affairs. And not only not only the only black I was always ever the only person of color who was in a decision making position or position to hire someone. Uh, and we're talking about a huge media organization where we had seven properties in in, in Washington, uh, 28 or seven properties in Western Washington, 28 in the state of Washington. Um, and uh, essentially all of the actual messaging uh, to all of the communities was coming from one central source in San Antonio. <laughs> um, 
about how to function and operate our radio stations and how to communicate uh, with our communities. Um, so uh, that that impacted me and, and that shaped me. And so when we were in the crisis of a pandemic, uh, after having done 20 years in major market radio and saying, I'm tired of this, I can't, I, I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, I, don't, I don't like what it's become. Uh, the the uh, In 2011, there was a, uh, the LPFMs were made available, which are low power FM radio stations. They were made available because major market radio was no longer addressing the needs of community. Uh, they had cleverly figured out how to not do that. Now, I was also part of that system. That's why I was there for so long. Uh, uh, and at one point, I was uh, I had 28 radio stations that were under my purvey uh, for different communities. And how do you um, personalize uh the messaging for 28 radio stations, you can't, you don't, it's impossible. Um, but you come, you become very clever at providing an overall message that everyone thinks belongs to them. Um, so the LPFMs uh, were given to, they were available in rural uh, uh, companies or rural um, neighborhoods, but they became available in urban neighborhoods Um and so that's a whole nother story at, at one point. So I got a license to do an FM station. Uh, the partnership that I had didn't work out, but within a week of getting the station on the air, they started trying to get me to advertise a bunch of propaganda. Um, so I told them to keep the $400,000 that I helped them to raise, keep the building. Uh, and I won't mention, I have to mention that they also locked the door on me, uh, changed the locks uh, because I, chose to broadcast in the interest of my community. And so rather than negotiate with them on what it should be, I just left uh, and started an internet radio station at the time, which people were saying, oh, it'll never work. You'll never have more than 10 listeners. Nobody's going to pay attention to that. Um, and within 24 hours, we were broadcasting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Fast forward to the pandemic where everyone got pushed to the internet. Uh, where people weren't communicating in ways that they normally do. Folks were isolated. Places that you gather, you could no longer gather. And information that you were getting was probably coming from a resource uh, that didn't really have an interest in your particular community. So those are the things that have most shaped me. Thank you, Tony. There's something you said about like this, not about who I am, but what I am. And there's a sense of like, I think you're everything that you've done in terms of service to the general public, misinformation, uh, speaking to community uh, in, a, in a way that community wants to be talked to or, or listened to, is really not about you, it's about us, right? It's like the, the pronouns are different. And so with that being said, I wanna also now pivot to this uh, second half of this podcast, which is really about giving you all a chance to just talk about something that you are working on. It could be a passion project. It could be the world of work. It could be a side hustle. But I want to give you all a platform um, to talk about something that you want to promote and you want to get out there into the community. And so we're going to start again in the same order. Roxana, like hit us with it. What, what do you got? I have a lot of projects. <laughs> I actually have two. I started two businesses during the past. Well, I had one, so I'm building one and I started a different one. And of course, I have Alimentando al Pueblo, which was a project under one of my businesses that is now incorporating as a nonprofit and is expanding beyond food. Um, our kind of little tagline is community food celebration. Um, to me, like joy and celebration is really, really critical to our ability to shift our culture to something different. Um, and so um, I, I always got a lot going on. I think right now the, the um, we just launched a 
a fundraiser to raise a million dollars for the food bank. Um, and part of that is because um, philanthropy is really restricting. Um, you know, our, our, our food bank, our, our model and our philosophy, one, we invest right back into the community. Um, and so we work with local grocery stores. We work with Latino owned farms to source the food um, that we give to our community because we know that our small businesses have been impacted. And so what better way to support them? You know, we have multifaceted issues. We need multifaceted solutions. Um, we also pay all of our staff living wages um, and we also feed our staff. Um, and we also have uh, music. Uh, we have artists that come and play at our distribution. So as people are picking up their boxes, we're, you know, they have, you know, we had the women's uh, Seattle's Seattle Women's Steel Pan Band and we had a mariachi um, and we commissioned a local artist to create an art print to give out to our families and um, a mutual aid collective called Mutual Aid Book Seattle gifted us books written by black indigenous authors that were in English and in Spanish. Um, and so, you know, when I say philanthropy is restricting, everybody wants to pay for food, but they don't want to pay for the labor that it takes to get that food to community. And they don't want to pay for the meals that we give our staff. I'm like, how is it that we're calling ourselves feeding the the, the village, but we're not feeding our staff? <laughs> you know, we're asking them to be here during a gold pandemic away from their families. Um, and how is it that we're not feeding them? And so, um, the the this one million dollar ask you know is yeah, it's absolutely aspirational and I hope one day we will get to that um, but it's also about shifting the culture about how we see this type of work um, you know we're shifting away from a culture of charity to a culture of justice of like no like we are deserving of living wages we are deserving of being fed we are deserving of safety we are deserving of joy we are deserving of celebration um, and so um, that is kind of like the biggest thing right now on my plate um, is you know incorporating this nonprofit um, and trying to find ways in which we can um, in which we can get dollars into our organizations that are not restricted um, because again when you have these restrictions on on grants like it really kills the imagination and the creativity um, because they're like I want to pay for food I'm like so you don't want to pay for the music that like that we you know the musicians that we book even though when you look at our program that's what you like about us <laughs> and so um so we're trying to really like get community to support our work and and trying to figure out ways in which um we can shift like our power you know and our our back to the the folks that we serve and have them be a part of this process as well because we think that's incredibly important um you know if it were up to me, I wouldn't be running a food distribution site. Um, I think it's an absolute travesty that food banks exist in one of the most well-resourced regions of the world. Um, but that is where we're at. Um, and so the best way, the best thing we can do is, is do it in a way that provides dignity and justice um, and and provides a little bit of joy to the folks that are that are engaging with us in, in our work. And so I would say that's kind of the biggest thing that we're doing. Um, again, I have two other businesses. Um, one of them was really focused on events, curating experiences for community. Um, we just finished our uh, uh, virtual festival called BDBD Bombash, which is an intergenerational cross-cultural festival that celebrates one of our beloved icons, which is Selena Quintanilla. Um, and we raised $3,000 to be able to give to two organizations, one of them being the White Center Community Development Association and the other being Youth Voices for Justice, which is a small collective of young people who are fighting for justice in Tequila, Sitak, and Birian. Um, and we closed that out and that was in person. And of course the pandemic changed it. And so we had to go to fully virtual. Um, we used to have this, uh, club night called Cumbiaton where we featured all, um, 
women of color DJs um, from all over the West Coast. It was called Cumbiaton West Coast Connect. Um, and we featured Black, Latina, Indigenous, Asian, like all sorts of, uh, of women and femme DJs um, because they don't get the spotlight in any other in any other like mainstream club events in Seattle or the Northwest. And that was really fun because um, we had live painters on stage. We had live performances and night market. Um, and it was a pretty awesome community building event. Um, and my second business that I started up, it's a it's an apparel and kind of lifestyle lifestyle brand. Um, again, I'm like, I'm, I'm a Chicana Latina from the Pacific Northwest. And a lot of culture that is related to like uh, Latinidad or being Chicana is very California centric, um, mm. very like Southwest centric. And I'm like, yo, we exist up here. <laughs> like we exist up here. Like, you know, we've been here for a while. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's kind of a lifestyle brand to like really bring forth. Like it's, it's it, to me, I call it my love letter to the Northwest um, because I have a lot of love for the Northwest, a lot of love for the green and the sea. Um, and so it's just an apparel brand that really, really talks to the to the duality and the biculturalness of of those of us who are who are folks of color um that live in the northwest because people don't associate us um with this region and so it's really about mm -hmm. just putting it aesthetically out there so that's that's a little bit of what i got going on and i, I just want to say for our listeners we're going to ask all our guests to send us links and stuff so we, we can you know be it instagram handles social media stuff websites like we're going to put that all up in the description so that people can really reach out and, uh, and connect with y'all. And, uh, I love everything that you do. Roxana is like, never just like one dimensional. It's like, you put layers like, Oh, so we're going to do food, but we're going to have music and we're going to do this. And we're going to do like, it's just like, everything has like multiple layers to it. And also a big, uh, call out to the funders to really think about like, Hey, you know, give grants that are not restrictive, you know, general operating grants, like, this idea of funding nonprofits but not funding the overhead is just wild. Like I think nonprofits should be funded like venture capitals, fund venture capital firms, like like startups. Like, here's a whole lot of money. This seems like a brilliant idea. You know what you're doing. Like, we hope this works. And if it doesn't, it didn't work. But if it works, it's gonna be transformative. Right. And we want we want this work to be transformative. We don't want it to be piecemeal, right? We're tired of piecemeal, right? We want we don't want small steps. We want we want a big jump. We want visionary changes for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. I appreciate it. And I, I really support you. Thank you so much. Uh, Ming Ming, your turn. Tell us what, what's something that you're working on, something you want to promote. So for me, um, I'm sort of continuing the work that I'm working here at Refugee Iris Initiative. Uh, the the mass making uh, during pandemic over 80,000 resulted in us hiring six, six more women. So we have 12 women right now from five different countries. And majority of women are Asian, like myself. Um, biggest poll is from Myanmar. So, um, you know, this past two months, or oh, actually this whole year with, um, you know, with Asian hate, and particularly what happened in Atlanta with the massacre of massage parlor women, it really struck a nerve with me, you know, knowing this could be the woman I work with. Uh, you know, coming here, uh, we settled in America, maybe with a lot of skill. You know, some men don't speak English. They don't know how to connect, and they end up, um, you know, working in, in these massage parlors that can um, put them on, you know, way to probably out of poverty, but at the same time, you know, uh, put it on a very adversary situation, some of them. Some of them. So, um, so we just launched a um, RA, Help RIS Stop Hate 
uh, Stop Asian Hate Campaign, help RAI Stop Asian Hate Campaign uh, on our GoFundMe campaign. Um, and it's a new platform we just launched that we quickly use another platform. Uh, GoFundMe had helped us to raise money to make lots of uh, masks during the pandemic. And now we want to raise that money to um, provide training, onboarding 20 more women <laughs> to do our scrub training program, give them a six to eight week uh, stipend with trainer. And the goal is that these women, once they learn how to make medical scrub, can start making for our partners. Our first partner is Swedish Hospital. And we would like to make scrub for all the Pacific Northwest locally made. Um, because there has been a supply chain issue, trying to wait for scrubs from overseas. Why not train these women who have desire to learn? You know, they might not speak the English, the language, but sewing, it's a very universal skill a lot of them come with. So we want to leverage knowing that this pandemic was a wake-up call because in our school, we don't teach them how to sew. <laughs> It's not in our curriculum. So everything had to be coming from overseas. So if we have these women sewing with essential skill that they must have, especially those who grew up in the refugee camp, they have to make their own clothes. So why not transfer that skill here to make things that we need and help them prosper? So that's one area right now we're working on. And second time thing, um, as you might notice in pandemic, there has been a tremendous amount of pet, pet adoption. <laughs> Lots of uh, cats and dogs get adopted. And what we also recognize is um, continue as a, as a nonprofit interest in circular economy, sort of, um, you know, make things available in your area and also creating jobs for refugee immigrant women is starting a zero-waste pet accessory products. You know, why can your pet wearing your, um, you know, it's cold outside. Why don't we have a pet sweater made from your sweater <laughs> that you no longer want? Why can we uh, make their beds from, you know, stuff from your old pillows or old shirts? Why can we make pet toys from fleece hats you no longer want uh, and jacket? So it's creating another in innovation and we just get accepted as one of the five finalists for the first ever Northwest Circular Design Contest. So I'm working on how to pitch <laughs> on, <laughs> on our circular uh, animal pet products. Uh, so that that's another area we think can adding um, opportunity for the artisan that we are training so they can make medical scrubs and pet products. And then the third area is that where I am right now, I'm in Lake City. And you may not know Lake City, we're in the northeast part of Seattle. It's also a very diverse neighborhood. There are about over 27 languages spoken here. And uh, we have all kinds of restaurants, Ethiopian, Mediterranean, Chinese, all kinds of restaurants just right on the street. Um, so we want to stay here, but we don't have a, a permanent home. Right now we have a donated space um, that's uh, ready for tear down maybe in the next year and two. And we and we see a, a space that up the street, it's a woodworking, work, woodworking shop. So we are hoping that 
through a capital campaign and other ways that we can find our permanent permanent home. So uh, we're looking for also um, people that would love to see us having a permanent multicultural art center, not only place for us to do training, um, our work, and also a space for our community to gather and to share art of different culture. Art doesn't mean have to be sewing, painting, can be poetry, singing, and other things. So that's uh, the third area. And then the fourth area, <laughs> uh, pandemic, you can't really um, go and meet people in cafes and go into restaurants. And I joined a Pacific Northwest uh, women's um, hiking group. So <laughs> it's been <laughs> transformative for me because, you know, I, I always thought maybe I would hike in, but not really, really into it. So I have met some really great friends that we started hiking around, going walk, uh, walk around Lake Union to hike some of the mountains around here and made me realize how beautiful Pacific Northwest is. Um, I always want to go somewhere on vacation. It is a wake-up call, like, you know, just open your eyes and see what's around you. So it's been transformative for me to be out and join the nature more on the days when I'm not here working with my, our artisans and my staff and with my family and with my dog out. Hiking out in the nature has been such a kind of, um, you know, re- Kind of, kind of way to relieve stress and sort of like, you know, I can do this again. <laughs> so that's kind of where I am. Thank you, Ming Ming. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, Roxana, but I'm kind of, kind of feeling a collab where you get your brand working with those scrubs and then like the nurses and doctors looking like real good with like, like Pacific Northwest type of like designs that like, you know, have like Chicano inspiration. Like I think, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's something there. Just, you know, just putting it out there for you all to think about. It is. I wanted to say that I actually also took up hiking and I never thought that was going to happen, but the pandemic makes us do weird things. And so me my mom and my sister go on hikes and we have a, we even like set like a goal of how many miles we want to hike. Like I never thought I would have, I would buy hiking boots. Like I'm, I'm totally like suburb city girl. And I'm like in the mountains and having such a blast. So I, I, I uh, I can relate, Miming. Hiking has been really, really incredible. Oh, and then you, um, Frank mentioned about scrub. So we actually go to um, Swedish and measure each person. We measure about 100 employee because we noticed that the scrub they look really terrible. Like <laughs> people either too big, baggy, or not fit right. So we actually going and measure each person. So they will get a set of scrub actually fit their body. So they actually wow, it's like high end couture like scrubs. <laughs> like like this is made to measure. Yeah, it's made like, to that's measure amazing. because they deserve it. You don't want to walk around hospital five days in a scrub that's hanging, you know, too too long or mm-hmm. too short. We we feel like you know that's how you feel, how your image gonna impact how how you you know make how you work, models. how you're productive. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. So that's a great detail to know about. That's cool. Very cool. I love that you all are doing so many things. So it's like, hey, share something. And usually sometimes I have guests just like, oh, I don't know if I, have, I can share. I don't know what I can do. I'm not really. And you're all like, oh, I, I got some things to talk about. And so, Tony, I'm going to hand it over to you. You have a radio station. Like, what? how can we help? Or is there something there? Is there something else that you're doing that you want to promote? 
one of the things that Rainier Avenue Radio was doing is a very comprehensive, holistic uh, celebration of Asian American Pacific Islander Month. I'm sure a lot of people are aware, but some people aren't aware that being Asian is not one monolithic thing, you know. Uh, and so uh, during the month of, of, of May, uh, we, we strive to show a variety of different aspects uh, if you were talking about origin stories, you know, when when were the first Japanese in this country? When were the first Chinese in this country? Uh, information that is intrinsically important to what really is American history, um, but we don't hear about it. Um, and then also, uh, again, <clears throat> uh, making sure that we are sharing stories from the Thai community, from the Cambodian community, from the Vietnamese community, uh, from our Chinese community, from our Japanese community. And, and, you know, for some people, I think initially it was the first that uh, a black guy was like this interested, you know, in making sure that his radio station served. Again, for me, it's the members of the community. Uh, that I live in. Um, and uh, so really excited about that. You can go to the website and check the calendar and see that we'll have a number of, a number of panel discussions, uh, sharing of life stories, uh, which are, again, critically important. People who you don't know, who've done extraordinary things that live right here in this community. Of course, we'll talk to uh, national and local leaders as well. Um, uh, <clears throat> Just, uh, I'm not sure exactly of the air date, but if you happen to be, uh, uh, May 26th, we, from noon to 1.30, we'll be having a conversation called Asian Voices Initiative, where we'll have members of the Asian community discuss how the pandemic impacts them and how they have to move forward, you know, uh, with, again, uh, the recent uptick. You know, uptick isn't even the right word, you know, of, of Asian hate and bias. Um and so we're focusing on a number of different things. We'll also have arts and culture performances as well. And that's during the month of May. Um, in June, uh, we're broadcasting high school sports. And so um, I think it's really cool because you can't go, uh, you know, to the sports this year. And so the friends, family, um, parents, grandparents, supporters, uh, we thought it was really important to make sure that we broadcast these games. So we broadcast football in the spring and basketball and we're broadcasting baseball. Um, both boys and girls basketball. Uh, so tune into the radio station and you can see some young student athletes and you realize how important that interaction is that these kids got to get back on the field and play. And uh, after a year of not being together, you know what that does to your mental health. That's a whole nother issue. Uh, but just them getting back out there again, you know, has been really amazing. So, uh, and for a lot of these kids, uh, this is how they're looking to go to college, whether it be a Division II team or a Division III team or maybe a community college. It's the way that uh, they can, you know, get their education paid for. And so when when um, uh, outside people can't come watch them, when coaches can't watch them, when scouts can't watch them, it's a big deal. The guys who have their D1 contracts, they're already straight. They're good. Um, so we'll be broadcasting high school sports. That should be fun. Um uh, and then on June 19th, we'll be celebrating Juneteenth, uh, which came more to the forefront after the um, incidents of last year. <laughs> uh, and I think that that is also phenomenal for any community to find out, again, what is essentially American history and what Juneteenth is and <clears throat> why it exists today. Um, 
Uh, and uh, again, it's just an area where I think that we forget uh, about the important contributions of African-Americans to the history of this country. And the fact that it took two years uh, for uh, General Granger to get to Texas to tell people they had essentially been free for two years. <laughs> um, and the stories about that and what happens to people when suddenly you're no longer enslaved. It's not like there's just opening arms welcoming you up into society. Uh, but um, families were formed uh, from people who said, well, we're, we're family now, you know, uh, and we're working through this together and some of the traditions that were um, uh, built off of that history. Uh, so that's Juneteenth that we'll be celebrating on June 19th. We'll actually be at the Othello Park broadcasting live. So it'll be a combination hybrid uh, virtual and physical manifestation of the event. And then uh, on June 21st, uh, we'll be celebrating and presenting something called Make Music Day. Uh, since 1982, around the world, there has been a celebration of music, uh, incredibly large in Paris and, and, and in New York and Australia and Spain, and where the music is celebrated all day for free. Musicians play for free. People who don't play instruments are invited to engage in interactive activities and participate in the joy of making music. And so last year we had to do this virtually. Um, this year we'll have the opportunity to do it citywide. So, uh, you know, we'll still be uh, COVID safe, but we'll be activating spaces downtown like the Waterfront Park um, uh, where the Big Wheel is and uh, Westlake Park uh, and Pioneer Square and having musicians there perform and providing opportunities uh, for folks that, you know what, we'll give you some drumsticks. We'll give them away for free and, and you can beat on something. Uh, and, um, and, and a number of different classes. So that's really exciting for one, uh, because of the healing spirit of music, you know, and the universality uh, of music and to be able to have, be able to once again spend the day, which happens every year on summer solstice doing Make Music Day Seattle. And our radio station um, produces that. There's a number of ways to get involved. We have something called flower pot songs where we'd be teaching um, people how to make music out of flower pots, you know, with the rings. We'll be having a uh, leaf music uh, where again, these are built on other cultural traditions where uh, we're gonna show you how to make music using leaves. Um, uh, we'll be doing a thing called My Song Is Your Song where we'll take groups from completely different genres of music. Uh, they'll, pre they'll present an original song. We'll give it to a band that plays a completely different type of music and tell them to record their version of it while that band records a version of their song. And so uh, a number of different things going on. We'll be putting buskers in front of banks and fitness centers um, uh, just again to activate the entire city. Uh, with the focus of Make Music Day and creating music. And uh, again, you don't have to be a musician to participate. So those are some things that were going on. And so since I had the opportunity to talk about what I'm doing, I'm going to uh, uh, do that with, uh, in radio, we call it shameless self-promotion. <laughs> so uh, our AAPI month, um, uh, that's going to be interesting. Definitely tune into that. We have one of the conversations is actually a Pacific Islander group that is looking to disaggregate from the AA uh, because uh, the pandemic uh, clearly uh, bared some things where they were suffering uh, completely out of proportion, but they weren't getting the same representation uh, that was there. Uh, and again, our high school basketball games and baseball games, tune in and check those out. Our Juneteenth uh, live broadcast happens on June 19th. So tune in and check that out. And our celebration of summer solstice 
uh, with Make Music Day Seattle on June 21st. Wow. You definitely, uh, when, if you work in radio and you're used to promoting things and talking about events, like that, you, you, you did a great job of it. I kind of want to hire you to do my podcast for me almost. Um, so yeah, so that's what you have it folks. Like, you know, there's a lot of things out there. Like we have three people, but they're doing the work and the promotion and the, the entrepreneurship of like 30 people, right? So if there isn't something that they said that you're not interested in, then I don't know what you're doing with your life. Like there's gotta be something around food, justice, like clothing, arts, music, sports. Like we got it all. This is like one of those novels where like, you know, they have a little bit of something for everybody. So I want to thank my guests for your time. Time is precious. And I think it's one of the most precious things that we have because we can't get it back. And the fact that you would spend this time with each other and community and with me and with the art, uh, our, our, our listeners. I really appreciate that. And I'm in gratitude for that um, time uh, sacrifice. And uh, we will be putting all this information on the description for the podcast. And so you can look in our description and find these links and do these things and let us know. And if you have any questions or shout outs, or you want to c- connect with any of our guests, please reach out to us uh, info at civic commons.org. And I just want to close with that. Thank you all for uh, being here. Thank you for listening uh, and at home. And uh, as always, we ask you to be stay safe, uh, build bridges, and always know that we belong here.